0: Good evening, everybody. I'm Ryan Miner, host of a Minor Detail podcast. So it's exciting news. Minor Detail podcast this year is turning five years old, and a special event is coming up on March the third. A Minor Detail is celebrating our five-year anniversary at Harry Brown's restaurant on State Circle in Annapolis Comptroller, Peter Francho who is running for governor will be our featured guest. So on the third, that's March 3rd at Harry Brown's six o'clock PM, join myself and many others with special guest Comptroller Francho, who's going to be speaking on my behalf. Maybe he'll say a few nice words. Who knows? You can find a minor detail podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, CastBox, Overcast, Overcast, or wherever you download your podcast. And then, of course, you can find the latest episodes on the web at a minor detail I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, you can find me all over social media. I haven't quite Evolved to the Instagram yet? I maybe because I'm uh, I'm 34 years old. I feel old, like compared to our millennial children who are using Instagram for like everything. Tonight I have a special guest, congressional candidate Liz Matori. She's running to fill fill a vacancy, it's the seventh congressional district. Liz, of course, is no stranger to a minor detail podcast. Liz, it's a pleasure to have you again. I think it's been a couple of years, but uh, you've been busy in that time. Yeah.
1: That's so funny and thank you for having me you know uh, five years ago i think you were one of the first platforms that allowed an independent at the time to have a platform so congratulations to the five years and and to be a part of this uh, journey you were right there with us
0: well <laughs> you were right there as well you were do you remember back in 2015 when the mm-hmm. republicans would have their debates this is on a national level you would come on with other guests and we would all kind of hang out for a couple of hours and talk about how the Republican candidates performed in each debate. That was fun. That was yeah, re- It
1: was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really fun to like try to like, um, you know observe the candidates as like, at that time, I was independent for you know that long six months. And to really see the pa- the parties separately, yeah. uh, it was a really great opportunity. And, you know, you know, the, the rest is kind of history from then on. But I really appreciated that time being an independent.
0: Oh, well, being an independent is not so bad. But you came from the Democratic Party. Before even that, you, you had the opportunity to attend some really great schools. Um, Of course, you went to Columbia, you went to Howard. You're certainly extraordinarily educated. Uh, You have a a great intellectual foundation. And just from speaking with you um, over the years, I know how you are engaged in policy. You appreciate that. Liz, let me ask you this question. And I remember, and just Just to refresh the audience and all who's listening and will later listen to the podcast. Your transition from a Democrat into an Independent, and of course you ran in the Congressional District 8 election back in 2016, and then Mm -hmm. you became a Republican. How did that transition begin? What was that process like for you? It's
1: been a rather public process, actually, (laughs) because it has been simultaneous while I was running for office. and. You know, and you'd mentioned um, Comptroller Francho at the beginning, and, you know, he was one of my soft supporters when I was a Democrat, when I ran for state delegate in 2014 to them, but even then, you know, I had support of the business community because I was considered a moderate just because I was talking about the economy. And even in a place like Montgomery County, for example, like, you know, that was when we sort of saw the, the Democratic Party skew extremely left, and now it's just the whole state or well, maybe the whole DNC, but... At that time, I even felt like my party left me. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, talking about the economy, focusing on, you know, I never, I thought the the social issues weren't that extreme as it has been over the last five years, if you will. But I definitely felt like our state were making decisions that were not the majority interest, but it was a minority interest. And so I sort of, through that experience and then um, also campaigning as a field organizer for the Democratic Party, um, after I lost my first race, um, I was a field organizer in Baltimore County for the Maryland Dems. And that was when I really started seeing how they really didn't care about the voters. They just wanted the numbers and then moved on. Um, Like when we were doing calls, thousands of calls a day, You know, people were saying, you know, it's the economy. I'm going to vote for this random Republican guy who happened to be Governor Hogan, Larry Hogan at the time. You know, we lost that race tremendously. (laughs) And I think people kind of forget that, you know, even getting Governor Hogan elected the first time was sort of when the Democratic Party here in Maryland sort of lost their way. And they really haven't quite gained it back, to be honest. So Before I even, you know, became as conservative as I am now, I really felt as if I really didn't have a place in the current Democratic Party as a sort of moderate at the time, as a Christian uh, still, um, and still, like, just more, uh, the whole, like, total huge government control of everything, I just... I really got allergic to that so that's
0: why I left. Well especially here in Montgomery County it it can be tough to be a Republican. I know because my wife is still a Kim's a moderate Republican and she wears that proudly on her sleeve but she still is a Republican and it 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 seems at times that it's a <laughs> it's a it's a tough position to be in Montgomery County and we know that Montgomery County Republicans, what does that even mean these days? They don't win, you know? They don't win elections here.
1: Well, well, what they do, and I think to their credit, they at the very least are going to be a dissident voice. And I think that's one of the things that I really did not like about Montgomery County is that it's such a, it seems like it's a bully state that you have to be absolutely a 1,000% progressive in order to even have a voice there. And I did not like that. Um And, you know, having been a sort of youngish person, I could, you know, vote with my feet, if you will, and leave. So so, as opposed to some people who have mortgages and children to raise and, you know, they're already retired. So a lot more people who are still sort of in Montgomery County, at the very least, they at least have their voices still. They might not have their vote anymore, but at least they have. You know, the, the breath in their in their
0: lungs. You know, Liz, I was thinking about that and your your point is salient in that it is tough to be a a moderate leaning progressive in this community in Montgomery County. Of course they do exist, and it brings me back to two thousand and eighteen when mm-hmm. David Blair, who was a businessman, ran in mm-hmm. that primary and it reminded me of having a a semi-moderate Democrat versus Mark Alrich, who is a, a left-wing progressive. He is certainly, he is on the Sanders wing of the party. And those two came in with within 77 votes, I believe, in the Democratic primary. And I just remember how brutally attacked David Blair was in that to that primary, and it was just fascinating to watch uh, from an outside perspective about how the Democrats eat their own. They talk about Republicans eating their own. Well, you you are right. They the, the, the Democrats in Montgomery County can be vicious, you know.
1: Well, and I think that it's, it's more so like I mean, we all know these players, right? So we do. Um, it's it's more fanatical in places like Montgomery. Um, like, the, the, the power that Brian Frosch had, now has, Jamie Raskin has, you know, Mark Elrich has, are from fans. It's, they're, they're, it, it's beyond supporters, you know? And um, you can't sort of question them or else you feel as if you're going to be personally attacked because you don't like their policies. And, um, you know, with that sort of war in mind... I was like, okay, I gotta kind of, you know, save my soul, if you will. I'm not willing to go down that route, so I might as well, you know, take a step away. I mean, it's really, I mean, I didn't want to move, you know, 30 miles away from my mom, because that's what ends up happening, but um, I definitely felt as if citizens, average citizens are not being listened to in
0: Montgomery County and You other parts of the state. So after you became a Republican, you ran in the eighth, con- eighth congressional district. And then two years ago, you were the nominee in Maryland's second congressional district in Baltimore mm-hmm. County. Liz, right. in 2018, what was that experience like? You were the party's nominee. You had a platform you earned several thousand votes in that election you went up against a longtime incumbent Dutch Rup- Rupersberger describe what that election was like and detail some of those issues that were present then
1: yeah well that's um another you know example of another gerrymandered uh, district a lot of people are saying oh you're running for the third district in you know three election cycles and I'm like look there's injustice throughout the entire state, and if I am able to, I will fight, you know, the best battle. And I do still think that Dutch Reapersburgers district is the sort of weakest district, if you will, not just because of the 35-year incumbent that is literally just sitting on his laurels and not really representing, just saying that he's Dutch and the people vote for him, which I think is totally disingenuous. There are also five jurisdictions. It goes all the way up to Habit Grace, down to Fort Meade, mm-hmm. and over like a sliver of, of, um, of Anne Arundel County, Howard County, Baltimore City, Baltimore County, and Harford. So, you know, another example of, you know, our representatives not caring who, who, you know, real representation, they just want the state at this state, you know, Democrat enclave. So that's the big issue there, um, the fact that it's, you know, bringing five jurisdictions in. But at the same time, you know, several years ago, people always told me that that was the quote-unquote racist part of the state. And I'm like, well, if they're so racist, then how do they, you know, nominate someone like me and then 77,000 folks vote for me in the general election 2018? So, you know, whether it's this race or two years ago, I'm sort sort of pushing the envelope when it comes to that narrative that, you know, everyone who's not a Democrat's a racist or, you know, everybody who's a Trump supporter is a racist or sexist or a bigot. Like I know that we, you know, differ on our support of the president, but at the same time just the idea that you're going to paint an entire community for your neighbors, by the way, as racist because of who they support or not, it's just not right. Especially in a place like Maryland. I mean I I think that we're a diverse enough state that you never know where people are coming from. You can't judge people by their skin color, especially here. Um, so that's why I do what I do because it's just not not fair to to a fellow citizens to sort of, you know, paint that broad brush. Do you know what I mean?
0: i I hear you. You earned seventy seven thousand seven hundred and eighty two votes in the general election against Dutch Ruperberger. Um forgive me, I don't know the total percentage, but of course it is a tough... It's
1: about 25, 26 same, percent. Same percentage that most, you know, Republicans end up getting.
0: <laughs> Even still, though, that was a, a feat, an accomplishment. You became the yeah. the party's nominee. I'm sure you've learned from that race. Liz, what were those major takeaways? What was those personal educational experiences <laughs> and uh, lessons that you learned from your uh, your first major nomination as as the party's nominee in a, in maryland's second congressional district
1: right no that one was a huge win for i I mean honestly the regional party i mean a lot of people were sort of focused on the governor's race as they should have been but for the people who supported like you know the county the county republican women's clubs and the central committees who were you know within those jurisdictions we sort of were able to like rally together and had a really great republican you know um, like ballot that you know people could sort of say this is our Republican ballot and as diverse as it as it was, I know that we don't vote on party, um, you know, identity politics in our party, but we were all proud to say that you know I am I was one of only six Black women nominated across the country at that time for Congress as, a, as Republicans. You know, we had a lot of good, you know, big tent candidates on our ballot. Some people were moderate, some people were conservative, some were pro life, some are pro Israel. Like there's so many different people who make up the Republican Party, especially here in Maryland. I think it was a really proud moment to say, like, you know, I'm one of the so called like like bannermen. Um, which I really would love to do again, but, you know, maybe because of that success, there are even more people who have sort of stepped up to the to the plate and and Tried to run, which I think is it's a blessing and a curse, <laughs> but um, but nonetheless, um, you know nobody could ever take away you know the fact that I was the 2018 nominee, and um, I'm always gonna love being that footnote in <laughs> history because it's literally a footnote.
0: <laughs> well, as you said, that your pastor texted you to, and asked to you to run for. The vacant seat that was left open, of course, when Congressman Elijah Cummings passed away last October. And you decided to to jump into the race. And so far there's how many Republican candidates? Is it seven or eight? Am I is well, there, that there,
1: there yeah, there were eight, but now there's seven because Reba, Reba is moving to three. She switched her um um, I guess, um, district two, district three, not district
0: seven anymore. Oh, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. She switched on Friday. Well,
0: that's, (laughs) you're breaking some news and something that I should have been on top of. So therefore I'm, I'm not, I wasn't familiar with that. So, so far you're in the, in a Republican primary and a heavily democratic area. Now, Liz, let me ask you in fairness, when, and some of the constituents, they might ask, okay, Liz, you ran for eight, you ran for two, and you're, now you're running for seven. Is it fair to say that some of the constituents might have concern that you're district hopping?
1: Um, yeah, except for the fact that the lines are so gerrymandered that it's really interesting to see that seven actually bridges the two together. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I really miss... The opportunity for representing a rural community like District 8 actually has half of it in a rural um, enclave District 2 doesn't really have that but District 7 kind of blends District 2 and District 8 together Um, so that's really sort of like a bridge district in my opinion also the fact that three of the five jurisdictions I just ran in are included in seven it's just the opposite like Baltimore City, Baltimore County, and most of Howard County are in seven, and had already run through those districts two years ago. So they're very similar. I mean, it's just a matter of the lines. You know what I mean? So I get why people have that issue, but at the same time, if he's been fighting gerrymandering for six years, like it's another opportunity to represent the people, not necessarily, you know, these random old dudes in a room deciding what the lines are going to look
0: like yeah what do you make of that maryland's congressional district for as progressive as the state may be in some circumstances and respects has no female members of our congressional delegation there are two united states senators are white males and our our congressional delegation all eight of them are males of course it's a mixture of um african americans and uh and and caucasian men but still we're lacking some diversity there what do you say to that
1: well i say you know you're making my point like this is not the first time and it's certainly not the last time that the democratic party specifically has had plenty of opportunities to you know get this identity in if they really cared about you know gender, if they really did care, they could have. whether it was an Miller in district six, Donna Edwards for a state for, for a US Senator. Galway Irvin was actually pushed out of the primary in district 8 in 2016. So you know this is this and then now they're, for better or worse, I don't care what she think about Maya Rockefeller court coming, or the three other Repu- I'm sorry, women running in the Democratic primary all four of them are being eclipsed by Kwai, and Fume. So, you know, people can complain about me leaving the party, but at the same time, it's like, if they really were about the business, we should have a more diverse delegation, If they, but they really don't care. Do you know what I mean?
0: What do you make of the current crop of candidates in the Republican field? I know that one of your opponents, who, who <clears throat> I've— I've interviewed, and I'm I'm not talking about the legendary Ray Bly, who I <laughs> I, I planned to interview. That should be fun, and I, I reached out to him, and I don't think – I think Ray Bly is up for anything these days, and he, he's made some interesting videos. But Liz, you're running against um, one of – I don't want to say against, but in the same field on the Republican ticket against yeah. – Kim Clasic and I. I'm just looking at your Twitter account now. And for anybody who's just tuning in, I'm talking with Liz Matory. She is a Republican congressional candidate running in the Seventh District special election. And you can check her out online at com. That's her website. Liz, on your Twitter feed, you yeah. <laughs> you had called out uh, Kim Clasic and you had asked, "Hey, Katrina Pearson and uh, uh, Brad Parscale, who's Donald Trump's campaign manager, did you approve of this? She's for OT over-the-counter birth control and she's not conservative. Are you um, what do you make of Ms. Clay or Mrs. Claysick's campaign um, and are you it, it it feels like you both are kind of battling this out? Uh
1: you know what um there are several different uh, thoughts I have about Kim um I think I'm sure she's a wonderful person, but for me, I'm really concerned about having a true conservative as our nominee. Um, Knowing how difficult this district really is, I think it's a better chance for us to show what conservatives really stand for, as opposed to trying to sort of compromise our biggest issues. Like, her big thing is over-the-counter birth control, for example. She thinks that's a solution for me, knowing the history of both birth control and abortion. They literally, the more that I've learned about it, because, you know, don't forget, I was pro-choice before, now I'm Mm pro-life. It's an entire industry that really has sort of severed our womanhood away from us. And with over-the-counter birth control, for example, it increases hyper hyper promiscuity and over-sexualization of our children, especially our young women that I am very adamant about. Um, you know, there's a lot of things with the adult entertainment industry in Baltimore, and a lot of people sort of have assumed that our culture is like this, so therefore you just have to deal with it. I don't like that, especially as our sort of us being leaders. I think being in leadership sort of, regardless of what you go through in your life, you should sort of be able to have a higher, higher bar for everyone, including yourself, which I've had to experience myself. So with that issue alone, I feel like as a conservative woman, you shouldn't be a thousand hyper progressive policies. Like that's just not what we should be doing with our nomination. Um, and also on top of that, you know, she's using President Trump's image and saying that she's going to the White House and all, but like. Backstory is that she got access to the like one or two of the Democrat, sorry, the the Trump operatives, Mm -hmm. and, you know, got a bunch of email lists, got fundraising, all that stuff. But now the Trump campaign's like trying to distance themselves away from her, but she's already sort of let that sort of cow out of the pasture.
0: You're saying that the Trump organization is distancing, distancing themselves from Kim?
1: Yeah, they've tried to, but you know, she's she's doing what she thinks she needs to do and and quite frankly more power to her. Um I wish her well, but I do think that Republicans in District 7 will do their research and that's pretty much all I'm going to say about that matter because I think that um they will be able to find more about the candidates and make their decisions based on The reality as opposed to the perception.
0: Fair enough. Let's talk about some of your policies and the platform for the seventh district. Of course it compass encompasses a large portion of Baltimore City. And we know that Baltimore City is I think it's fair to say it's been struggling with crime, with poverty, with a number of issues that face every major city. Kim, what can we do as (laughs) Liz, I am so. You know what? It's a. It's a.
1: Okay. I, I,
0: it's. It's just one of those senior moments. I'm telling you. Um, no, forgive. You're me.
1: younger than me, bro. I know.
0: I know. I'm only 34, and you're like what, 35? So.
1: <laughs> Whatever, dude. I'm turning the big 4-0 in two weeks.
0: Oh my goodness. Well, you know what? Yeah, That's. Man. That's well. You you've. Uh...
1: I've earned every one of those years. You know
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. Um, let me let me let me ask you about your policy platform, especially from Baltimore City. That's that yes. seems to be on the minds of many astute followers, city residents. What can we do? Right. Uh, In Congress, Liz, to address the issue of crime, poverty, and just uh, some of the major, major problems that face the city. How can you work together with city leaders? What would be some of your solutions?
1: Well, number one solution, quite frankly, is to get rid of the, you know, the money train, right? Um, We know that like a billion dollars were sent and we don't know where it's spent or how it's spent. Um, And that... For better or worse, she could be supportive of, of uh, Congressman Cummings all you want, but we all know that District Seven was used as sort of a, a piggy bank, and um, our solution to be able to you know cut that and sever that whatever um, system it, is is cor- whatever you want to call it corrupt, whatever do you call it you know, pay to play, whatever you want to call it, when you have a Republican, particularly this particular Republican as the congresswoman. You won't have that anymore. It's it's virtually impossible. Like, not only would I not even know where to begin to do all that, I wouldn't want to. Unfortunately, as I said before, the Democratic Party has used Elijah Cummings and this district as sort of their, like, poster child to say, oh, look at how poor Baltimore is. We need Democrat policies. Like, that literally is what they do. And I do think, and I've said this before, that Baltimore has been kept impoverished for a reason and it's really sad to see and again having new leadership sort of being like cut the crap let's get things solved let's get people back to work let's get people sober again let's you know unified um, families let's get people to focus on you know responsibility personal responsibility and basic conservative principles that by the way we were raised by or raised with that's the first start Secondarily, yeah, making sure that our economic system works again. You know, if we're going to have these big companies come and stay, make sure that they're supporting the society that lives there as opposed to, you know, making something super duper fancy and then not, you know, employing people at, at good rates. Thirdly, um, with the crime, you know, again, I think that there's certain people who have kept society as depraved as it has been. Um, I think that our police have been just totally, I don't know, just emasculated from what they've had to suffer from over the last seven years. And there has to be a recalibration. Like is there corruption? Sure. on all parts, let's clean it up. And let's make sure that these neighborhoods are safe because people want to focus on crime. The criminals are, you know, the victims of crime are their neighbors. So I think Baltimore really needs to have strong leadership that will not apologize and try to hide other people's fault. You know what I mean? Like they're like, everybody's related to everybody and they, they needed this person to get this job. So therefore they can't talk. They can't talk truth about the matter because I'm coming from outside of the system. Um, I'm not going to owe anybody anything except for the voters. You know what I mean?
0: Specifically though, what, what can we do? What can Congress do? What can you do alongside of the Maryland's congressional delegation and our two United States senators with including the mayor and the city council to fundamentally change the culture of crime that has been plaguing this great American city for some years now? Yeah.
1: Well, I think being honest about it, I mean, I think most people in Baltimore Aren't criminals, right? Like they're sort of been, uh, you know, assumed that everybody is a, a derelict, right? And it's not true. Um, I think that the city, the people in Baltimore want the best for the city. They know what works, but we want to make sure that the resources are going to the programs and the people that do have solutions, not the political operatives that are being paid off because they were able to get this person elected. Because that's what's happening. You know what they feel like we have to start with the political corruption first in order to address the society problems, because the society's problems aren't being fixed because of the political corruption. Do you know what I mean? L-
0: let me ask you this. So what do you believe is the most pressing domestic policy issue facing Maryland's 7th Congressional District at this time?
1: Um, I think it's human trafficking,
0: human trap. You want to talk about that? You've talked about this yeah. in, in different forums, and then you've talked about this with supporters and, and videos. I'm interested to hear your, your take on this.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, like, um, we have a bunch of industries here that are also politically connected, whether it's shoot Baltimore, like the street itself is like the bastion of strip clubs, right? Between that and um, the, the hotel motels that are sprinkling throughout the whole region, Route 40, between the county and the city, um, and people are literally abducted and brought into the sex trade. Um, we think that it usually is immigrants, but they're not. They're actually domestic, like, American citizens. Mostly people who are sort of disenfranchised from their families that are, that are awkward preteen teens that are really vulnerable, that are either being abducted through um, you know, chat like basic, you know, social media or they sadly are now selling themselves which is another element that again, we are not paying attention to our children children aren't able to be kids anymore and that's another story but um, there's a whole sort of culture of you know, this is how things are, let's sort of you know, turn a blind eye to it, and now we have like a record amount of people who are either in the sex trade, or or sex slavery, or work slaves, like it, you know, labor slavery. Is
0: is there a certain piece of legislation, or is there a certain policy that you would push as a member of Congress, and uh, are, would you or would you expand on any legislation right. already pending in Congress to? reduce this to put a stop to the human trafficking in Baltimore City, as you described?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I would encourage coordination, first of all, education, too, because a lot of people aren't aware. So I know DHS has tried to do some public service, you know, um, I guess, campaigns, but we have to, like, ramp it up so that it's, everyone knows about it as opposed to it being sort of a thing that's behind some, you know, toilet what you call it? stall, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody should sort of know what, what, what are the issues, what are the, you know, especially with their children, what to look out for. um, And then to cut down on um, the, the pimps and the, and the people who are sort of the the, the kingpins, if you will, um, make sure that police, local police are able to adjudicate. Um, There are a lot of people who sort of, again, because there are some, notable people who are involved in it they aren't allowed to 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 adjudicate so i want to make sure that the people who can do the investigations have the support of the government when the government's supposed to do it you know um and then move it from um identification prosecution and then um imprisonment liz you mentioned basic but (laughs) you
0: know liz you mentioned earlier, you, you mentioned immigration, and of course, President Trump has taken on immigration reform as one of his top domestic policy agendas. Do you support the president's immigration policies, and what changes would you make to ensure that every immigrant has a chance at the American dream?
1: Yeah, so my mom's um, a legal immigrant from the Philippines, you probably know, mm-hmm. or you might not know. Um, and so immigration is very big for me because half my family is immigrant. Um, I do think that people have conflated the term legal immigrant with the illegal status that really kind of confuses things. Um, the major things that I support the president on is the fact that I do think we need to slow down the um, the push from the border. And it's not even just from the border. In our region, it's more visa overstates. Um, and what I would support the president doing is increasing the amount of um, administrative judges that hear these cases because what happens is the numbers are so great that people like basically receive summons and they can't even be heard for like a year and a half. So they're like, all right, great. I got a year and a half passed. So like, you know, like they don't even like come back because it's not a part of their lexicon to be like, okay, I have to piece the paper. I have to go to court now. Like we sort of assume that everybody has the same moral, moral values and principles that we have, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, And many also issues um, from other countries is that, again, people are used to living extra legally. And if we are encouraging people to come to our region, particularly Maryland, already breaking the law, how are we going to assume that they're going to follow the law afterwards? There are, I would say, what, I don't know the exact numbers, but 65% of the population of undocumented residents, if you will, are totally cool, fine, whatever. But what do you do to 35%? And nobody is allowing us to have an honest conversation about that. There's one side that's like, everybody's great. We love everybody. One love. Woo, nobody's doing anything wrong. And then there's another side that's like, screw you. Nobody counts. You know, like, that. obviously, <laughs> both of those are not true, you know? And so in Congress, we need to have those honest conversations. What are the facts? Who are the people? What are they doing? Do they have prior convictions from their home country? All of that, those three things are separate. And you should be able to identify them in a non-racist way. And someone like me would do that because that's my background. But then again, make sure that our infrastructure is in place to adjudicate the people who have pending cases. Because that just exacerbates the problem.
0: Liz, at the beginning of the president's administration in 2017, he pushed what has become known as the ban on Muslims entering the country, I believe from seven different countries. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Um, from what I know of, I don't have an issue with it, the way that it's being applied. Now, how it's being perceived is a whole other story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that people... See, oh, Muslim, oh, they don't like all Middle Middle Easterners. That also includes, I think, other countries like, um, I don't know the whole list, but I think there's some Asian countries and some African countries that are included in that. So that's again, you got to broaden what you think of as Islam. You know, Islam is a global religion that, you know, having known a couple of members in it, there's a variety of religions. The people who are the most devout and the most by the book, which is through law, will not follow our constitution. And that is an issue that we all should be concerned about. And however you address that, I do think, again, you should have a sober approach to protecting our country from people who literally will not fall within The confines of what everybody else is is governing through. Um, and again, that shouldn't be color based, whatever based. It is fundamentally speaking, two people have two different understandings of whose law they should follow. And I think more of us should be educated in the different, particularly the major religions in the, in the world and know where people are coming from and, and, and know that, you know, not everybody is means
0: you well and not everybody means you well Uh, let me switch over to the economy liz the Mm -hmm. economy seems to be in good shape it's moving in a forward direction the stock market is doing well unemployment is down these are economic indicators that would support the the re-election of this president that seems to be a a key argument in the president's game plan in his campaign strategy to to show look hey the economy is actually improving and things are looking up but let me ask you this question some of his trade policies uh seemingly uh are controversial right and he's he's going into the direction of imposing tariffs and soybean farmers are unhappy with him at this time And some of the countries, of rather, some of the companies have moved out of certain uh, states and whatnot. What do you make of the the current economy? And is the is the president's take on trade? Is that something you share with him? Do you support his policies?
1: Right. So um, my concern with the economy is that it's so strong that this year they're going to probably crash it again. Hmm. Um, like they did in 2000, what was that, eight? Um, in order to impact an election, which is something that we all should worry about because they've done it before, and of course they could do it again. But um, I think it's wonderful to to see and to experience how people are finally being able to breathe, breathe again, having been under really um, desperate times over the last decade, I guess it would be, um, and I want that to succeed, and I want that to continue. I do not support everything that the president does, especially with the USMCA, because, you know, I'm sort of more of the Rand Pauler type of person when it comes to that kind of stuff, where, you know, you want your country to be strong, but you also, you know, our sovereignty comes first, right? Do I don't have all the access to all the different commodities that, um, that are in the several different tariffs. I would like them, if they are going to be, to be temporary, not permanent, um, so that we can grow industries. And then I'm assuming they would take sort of like a triage of which commodities and and um, sort of industries would fare better with protectionist um, tariffs or not, and then see which ones will increase the power of our of our of our economy for the long haul. Now I don't of course, support, you know, making farmers impoverished, absolutely not, but I'm assuming, again, that his economic advisors have weighed the odds, and that is what they've decided to do. Now, being in Congress, will have more access to these conversations, and I think that's something that I can benefit the community with, because, you know, I'm an MBA, and we kind of do that by nature, you know, we are supposed to evaluate the whole swath of our information and see what works for the best as opposed to what, you know, what lobbyists want from us.
0: Liz, you mentioned, should you be elected to Congress? And based on your professional experience, is there certain committees or subcommittees that you would like to be appointed to serve on?
1: Yeah, I had mentioned last week that I'm uh, a young Republican, but I want to be on the Ag Committee uh, hmm. because um, half of our district is agricultural, ag- agrarian, I should say. And somebody had mentioned to me a few years ago, they're like, well, do you like to eat? Well, then <laughs> everybody should care about farming, right? right? Um, and then also um, um food stamps, etc., are also on the Ag Committee. So it's actually a committee that could that actually could impact the entire district, oddly. Um, And I can serve on any of them, but I think that um, it would be really cool to have that cross, not cross-cultural, but trans-district experience, (laughs) because we have all three. We have urban, suburban, and rural communities represented in District 7. So to see that, um, you know, we have food deserts all throughout our urban communities, which is just ridiculous. Um, Our food, food nutrients. The nutrients in our foods are very um, just subpar. Um, Do you think that there are issues with chemicals in our foods and and hormones in our food? All of that stuff. um, I think, even though I don't have the, you know, the professional experience in, um, I am quite concerned with our food supply here.
0: Liz, let me ask you this question, and just sh- shifting over to foreign policy, who do you see in the the foreign policy paradigm as our biggest geopolitical foe?
1: Oh, goodness. <laughs> I personally think it's our partisanism that is our biggest foe. Say that again. I'm sorry, I
0: didn't catch I- that.
1: I said I would say it's our hyper-partisan division that is our biggest foe, but it's internal. Um, I think that that's the biggest threat to our sovereignty is how divisive we become or perceived to be to become. But externally, um, if I had to pick one, I'd pick China um, and reference to cyber security.
0: Yeah, that's a big one. The, the, yeah,
1: I know. It's creepy, huh?
0: It's a it's a major issue and let me ask you, speaking of cybersecurity, are you concerned that our elections will be secure in two thousand and twenty? We know with a great deal of certainty, well more than fifty percent, that in two thousand and sixteen Russia undoubtedly had connections into our election system meaning that they used social media to spread misinformation and i continue to read report after report that congress is concerned about an ish about the same thing happening and again that our election uh, our elections are not entirely secure that it could be hacked from a number of different countries what's your take on that liz
1: um i think that the benefit of having decentralization. Um, Thank goodness, fingers crossed, each state, and then within that, each county controls their vote. Um, So when it comes to really manipulating the votes, they won't be able to do that. But I think the issue with social media, I don't know if it's a foreign state actor or just biased, you know, um, quelling of information and, and sort of, censorship in that way, I think I'm more concerned about that manipulation, if that makes sense. It,
0: um, what does that mean? Are, are you... Meaning
1: like like swaying the vote based on showing you certain stories versus not showing you certain stories. Okay. You know how like the, the um, what is it called? The, um, the social media is uh, admin, administrators, but then they're, they're within the like... Facebook headquarters or YouTube. I mean, YouTube does it somewhat with um, analytics. Right. Um, I'm concerned of that. I'm more concerned about the you know, the, the hyper partisanism, the people being in silos, um, not being able to like turn on the television and see a diverse conversation, but like literally we just listen sound soundlight after soundlight after soundlight. I think that is very destructive of our democracy. Um, and I think that the American citizens are rightfully concerned with not knowing what, what and who to trust. And again, that is a bigger threat to our democracy than any foreign entity, because that's really the perception of of insecurity is worse than insecurity itself.
0: Liz, you're a, a you went to law school. You uh, you know the law well. So I would be remiss if we didn't bring up the big I word in this conversation that's occurring. (laughs) I I know it's occurring. Ice
1: cream. Yes. I uh, love ice cream.
0: I would much rather talk (laughs) about ice cream than impeachment. So we saw the House proceedings. We saw the number of uh, people who were called before the committee who were subpoenaed to testify. And then, of course, we are in the trial phase of the impeachment process where the floor managers are making their case, the president's lawyers are, I believe, in day three of the defense of him. What is your breakdown of the impeachment process?
1: Well, honestly, I think it's very drawn out, in my opinion. Um, and I think if it were, a—I a, I wish there were a bigger problem. You know what I mean? Like, I wish that there were a big gaping hole that I'm, I'm I don't know, I, 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 this is um public, but like, I want something, I want it to be sexier. Do you know what I mean? No, <laughs> like, I... I want the problem to be like, that, I mean, we come up with Clinton, you know what I mean? Like, where's the bad, good stuff? You know, <laughs> I hate to say that, but like, I'm. when that bar is already set in the 90s, um I sort of wish that there were more to look at. Um, in this
0: process. Well, so, you know, it's uh, a, of course, the president has been accused of extorting a foreign nation to, uh, by withholding congressionally approved aid for a political favor. So I, I don't know if that would be considered sexy or not, but uh, it, it has a Eastern European flavor with Ukraine. And so right. what do you think? Yeah. If you were a member of Congress today, Liz, would, yeah. you, uh, would you have voted to impeach the president?
1: No, because, you know, God, every other person has done that before. I mean, I think that's the weird thing that the average citizen, you don't have to go to law school to see that. But pres- uh, I gave him President. Vice President Biden literally was, like, um, joking about how he was able to keep money away from people until that other person did what he wanted, you know? Um, and that's what I feel is the problem. If you were going to set this precedent now, then you would go... I would push for the, um, the prosecution of all prior administrations from doing whatever... President Trump has been accused of doing. I would apply that on on the other ones too. That's my problem, but they're not going to do that. And so, if they're not going to, you sort of apply the law fully, equally throughout all administrations, then don't. Then why are you doing it? The only reason why you're doing it now is because it's a quotable means to an end, you, and that's the sort of problem that I have with it.
0: That has been a primary argument of the president and his legal team and his and his team that they are looking Mm -hmm. to up in the results of the 2016 election. So do you Mm -hmm. do you buy into that argument?
1: Um, I think there's a like a little checklist that people are looking at. I mean, even our our Congressman Jamie Raskin, his first conversation that he had in defensa with his supporters was, we are going to find a way to impeach this president. And that was right after being sworn into office in 2016, in 2017, if you will. So again, like if you know that Jamie Raskin, our congressman in District 8, swore to impeach him since January of 2017, then of course I have to be worried. You know, so you're basically seeing our president, our duly elected, in my opinion, president, govern our sovereign nation looking for him to be tripped up. Do you know what I mean? So they can immediately get him out of it so that what they're going to import someone else. Because, oh, by the way, Vice President Pence is the next one in line. And he, by the way, is a lot more conservative than the one that you have now. (laughs) So I don't know why they're doing it. I really don't. Unless it's just political.
0: Liz, on your website, you list Mm -hmm. 2020 official endorsements. You've been endorsed by... Ambassador Alan Sauerbrey who of course was a two two time candidate for governor in the state of Maryland in the nineties, you have been endorsed by uh, Lauren Arrakhan, by Trent Kittleman. These are some heavy hitters in Maryland's Republican Party. So clearly, you have amassed some support in the traditional Republican conservative establishment in in the States. So, um, do you think that would translate into, into votes come February the 4th when the general election is going to be held?
1: Well, I hope so. <laughs> you know? sure. I mean, if anything, you know, for us, um, we decided to at least band together because we've been at this for a while. I mean, I think, again, being a Republican in Maryland is not an easy thing, you know, you know, you might've known. Um, and, um, we kind of felt like, you know, this is an opportunity for us all to come together and say, you know, we've been working on this. We really want someone who, quite frankly, everyone involved has helped me along the way through my journey. Like, you know, you remember when, we, when I was green and I was like a new Republican. And I was like, what is a rhino? Like, I don't know what that word means, you know, <laughs> to, to being who I am now. I mean, everyone has really helped me understand the issues, connect with the voters. You know, every community that falls within District 7, um, each one of those um, endorsers, if you will, um, have already been leaders within. So I do pray that, you know, their supporters will in turn become our supporters and we can really represent the district fully. That's that's our goal.
0: What are you focusing in on in the final weeks of the campaign? What's your message to the voters?
1: Yeah, the final week. (laughs) I guess, next week. <laughs> I guess it is, yeah,
0: next what, next Tuesday, right? Yeah, next
1: Tuesday. Wow. So, yeah, no, thank you. I mean, honestly, like, having this opportunity to, to connect this way has been really great. We've had a lot of good, you know, organic media hits. Um, and just, you know, for voters to go out and vote, number one, this is a one-and-done, only February 4th, um, research the candidate. I do believe that this is an opportunity for us to have a pro-life conservative very very now conservative person to represent our district mind you i'm also coming from a civil rights background so when people are wanting to identify how to you know like balance the conversation and understand where people are coming from i'm coming from that community to begin with and i haven't left it i just have broadened my ideas to include conservative principles that by the way we came from originally so, I do hope that voters, again, educate themselves, look at the guides that people have, you know, answered. Some people haven't answered certain guides, and you should be able to identify who's a serious candidate and who's not. Um, and this is the one time where voters, actual citizens, get to choose their representatives as opposed to the establishment Democrats identifying who gets to, to represent them.
0: So, for all the people out there who are completely confused about the process of a special election. Let me include myself in that category. Uh, Let me see if I understand this correctly. So you go on to the primary next week, and if you are successful in the primary, does that, of course, that would mean that you, do you advance automatically then to the April primary, or are you already on the ballot in that primary?
1: So it's as if we have two different elections going on at once. We have the special election, which is the primary is February 4th. The general, so from that result, we'll have one Republican and one Democrat. Those two people will then run April 28th against each other for the special election. Mm-hmm. That is only for the next eight-month term that Elijah Cummings died in. The April 28th is the normally scheduled primary for the 2021
0: term. Okay. So,
1: you you basically district voters in seven will vote for two people. They could be voting for two different people on April twenty eighth.
0: I see. So here is my question to you: when When is the next Congress? When would someone? What as soon as? Let me rephrase that. When is <laughs> When is the point when someone is going to be sworn in as the next Congress person?
1: Um. That would be sometime early May whoever wins the general election April 28th of the special.
0: Whoever wins, okay, I see.
1: Whoever wins that position, though, is only for that eight months. Because in April 28th, the regularly scheduled primary is happening for the 2021 swearing-in.
0: Right, okay. And so it's two different elections, but the candidates, so one Democrat and one Republican will then face off to uh to serve out the remainder of the late Elijah Cummings' seat and that's gonna be decided in April, correct? Yes, sir. Okay. I see it's it's a little bit confusing. I gotta be honest with you. Okay. And I, I sh- <laughs> so
1: well I mean honestly it's better than what could have happened, which was to have someone appointed. Yes. And that wouldn't have allowed a democratic process at all.
0: I agree. And I think that the, the more democratic the process, the better. Having voters make that direct decision instead of a central committee or uh, whatnot, right. I'm all supportive of that. Liz, it's been a nice conversation. It's been fun. I'm glad that we could catch up. And I really appreciate you spending time on a Minor Detail podcast tonight. So uh, what's your what's your final message to voters in, in this final week?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me again. I really sure. appreciate it and congratulations on the five years. Thank you. Um, my message to voters again is please vote. You know, go out and vote. I would love for you to vote for me. Um, I do believe that we can actually win this race with me specifically because of my former Democrat self, now Republican self. Um, but with another Republican, we'll just sort of, we won't have a, a, a message really. Um, it won't be a, a useful message, to be honest, because the traditional Democrat will be anxious about voting for a Republican. But for someone who was a former Democrat, a former field operative for the Democratic Party, they will understand where I'm coming from and then make the case to vote for another Republican um, coming into the general election. So I do pray that they pick the right Republican. But I definitely, definitely beg for people to come out and vote February 4th.
0: February 4th is the date of the special election. Even if it's cold, I encourage people to get out and vote, and they can check out Liz Mottori, who's running for U.S. Congress, in the 7th Congressional District at com. Liz, you are on Facebook, you're on Twitter, you're on social media, you are a prol- prolific social media user. You uh, release several YouTube videos that explain your positions on policy, and just generally your political philosophy. So if you want some more information, I encourage listeners to check that out. Liz, I appreciate you coming on tonight on a Monday night, and I wish you the best of luck in the primary.
1: Okay, thanks so much, Ryan.
0: You bet. Take care. Thanks, Liz. Okay, that was Liz Matori. She is running for Congress in Maryland's 7th Congressional District. Check her out. votelizmatori.com my name is Ryan Miner. This is a Minor Detail podcast. Find me on the web at aminordetail.com. I'm on Facebook, I am on Twitter, and I am on iTunes, iHeartRadio, CastBox, and Overcast. Thank you everybody for listening and have a happy week.